You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 207, and we're back to our old intro. Oh, wait. I guess saying the old intro would make it not the old intro, but a new or revised intro. This this is the intro, and welcome to it. And uh, so we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Hit us up at, uh, yeah, have a nice day. I wrote all that down so we can do it next time. I compressed it. I super compressed (laughs) the show there. Yeah. Excellent. All right, we're done. We'll see you next time. Okay, you know I'm good. I, I got to read them. I can't. I can't do this. Hey, so subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, more using your favorite podcast. Like Alan app. was literally twitching over there. Like, I, I can't. I can't like, what it. are we doing? <laughs> it, it hurts. <laughs> I thought I had bad OCD, but I guess I'm not alone. No, you know the thing that gets me that's really funny is is that my it's wife CDO. Ooh, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's right. Why isn't it? But, but there is one thing that in this life I cannot deal with. And my wife will do it to me on occasion is she'll open all the cabinet doors and open up all the drawers. And I just, because she knows that I walk in and I'm like, why, why would you do this? Wait, she leaves them open on purpose because she knows it drives me insane. Like I, I, If you leave a drawer open, I will close it. Like I can't, I can't not close a drawer or a cabinet door. Like I have to do it. Anyways, um, that sounds evil. It's wrong. (laughs) It's totally wrong. And and I'll walk in and I'll try and just turn around and walk out. I can't, I can't do it. So, anyways, hey, yes. Um, so hey, also leave us a review if you can. If you haven't already, you can find some helpful links at cuttingblocks.net slash review. And hey, uh, we got a website with a bunch of snossage links to the top of the page, uh, cuttingblocks.net. I uh, did hear from the comment section. Thank you very much that Alan was, in fact, right about everything. Uh, oh, really? Including, yeah, including what we said. So I don't even remember. What what was I right about? Uh, I said sausage links and Outlaw said something. <laughs> uh, I forget what it was. That was like it was something funny. Uh, okay. Yeah, I are, thought are you, I just lost my mind. I think you're referring to uh, that new podcast distributor. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. That's right. I, I don't remember them now, but I think it was like Stitchify. And uh, it's a, <laughs> oh, it's yeah. an up-and-coming platform that you should probably check out. If you haven't already, uh, you can subscribe to us there on Stitchify. And, uh, <laughs> you know, while you're there, hey, leave us a review, leave a cabinet door open, and uh-huh. uh, let us know. That's so wrong. See, I'm already twitching thinking about it. <laughs> hey, hey, with that, I'm Alan Underwood. Wait, you're out I'm of good. order. Yeah, I know I did it on purpose. You messed me up this morning. <laughs> uh, I'm uh, Joe Thriving on Chaos, Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw leaving all the drawers open. That's right. All right. So, hey, before we get into the news, today we are continuing on Designing Data Intensive Applications, one of our very favorite books. And this time we're talking about executing transactions serially seriously <laughs> all right serious transactions serious serious right, hey, serial. first thanks for some reviews all you want to take this sure uh so from itunes we have power hungry pygmy so uh huge thanks also i wanted to say like i couldn't remember so uh in that uh review he or she was talking about um the, the meltdown voice and I went back listening to it. I couldn't find it, but I didn't listen to the entire episode to find it, but I, I did go scrubbing around trying to find it and didn't. So, uh, 
you know, maybe some help there and I'll, I'll relive the meltdown voice if I can remember what I did during that. But also that he, the episode in reference here was 161. Anybody care to guess why episode 161 might stick out in our minds for any reason? Uh, I I don't remember that number. Nothing, dude. I didn't mean to say that loud. It's the one that started the infamous. It's it's definitely infamous, by the way. The infamous <laughs> sock shoe sock shoe debate. Oh, oh yes, <laughs> uh, which we've clearly followed on my side on that one. Yeah, sock uh, shoe sock shoe. No. <laughs> oh no. wait, no, you were shoe sock shoe sock. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. In case you're in an ice storm, yeah. Oh man, what are socks? <laughs> oh golly. Yeah, Florida boy down there. Yeah, I can it's those that. things you wear with your Crocs. Yeah, <laughs> that man, that is such a trend now. I see, I see adults walking around like that. I'm like, is that a trend now? I though so. I think that's well, the trend forever. then. Forever, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. All right. So hey, real quick before we get into this one, so there is a database technology that's brought up in the book that I'd never heard of. I don't know if you guys had. It's called VoltDB. You know, I hadn't heard of it. So. I went and did a little bit of looking on it, and what's really interesting about it is it looks like it's it looks like it's pretty sweet, but they call out that they have an AGPL v3 license, and hearkening back to the days of old when I think Outlaw found this site called TLDR Legal that basically will give you in layman's terms what the heck these licenses all mean. This one's really interesting and would be really hard for me to use. So it's it's basically GPL, except I know you guys, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on this on on any of the podcasts before, but a lot of companies got really irritated with companies like Amazon who would basically take open source software and wrap it and turn it into a service and be like, okay, here it is, right? Like Elasticsearch, for example. Um there was a big uproar about them changing their licenses a couple of years back. And they were like, yeah, it's, it's garbage, right? Like we have this, this license in place that says, Hey, you can use this if it's for your personal or commercial use or whatever. But GPL, the whole thing was always copy left, right? Which is basically, Hey, if you go using this or if you change it or whatever, you have to distribute the source code, right? It's the copy, the, the hard copy left type thing. Well, there was a loophole with services because technically if, if somebody was using a service, they weren't distributing the software, right? They were distributing the results of the software. And so there was a loophole for companies that would wrap things and create a service around them. So that's where AGPL came from was it was an addendum to that to basically say, Hey, if you're providing a service, that is using that software that is also distributing. And so you have to provide the open source code. So this company decided to go with that. So it, it's really interesting. You can't just use this thing. And again, there's the gray area between um, what you actually have to open source and not. And so for instance, uh, they all, I have a link to an article here uh, from the blog that is basically uh, Google won't allow anybody to use AGPL within their company. 
if the software is licensed that way, they can't use it. And it's because there's that gray area of, hey, do I only have to open source the changes I made to that software if I've modified VoltDB? That's fine. I'll open source that. But do you have to open source the rest of your application? And that's where the gray line is. And my guess is that's why they don't allow it. So I just wanted to bring that up because it was a new learning on open source licensing and a technology I hadn't even heard about before that apparently is pretty cool. But yeah. Yeah. Hey, free tip, by the way. Um, so in my personal project, I've recently started um, putting the title of MIT license up top and then using the text of AGPL in the license. Uh, which is a great way to get people you know, who aren't reading your licenses to use your product, and then you get them. <laughs> get them. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm about to retire now. That's I'm a tip. Well. That, yeah. That's his quote-unquote tip. Yeah. It's like the only uses my stuff. So. <laughs> that's the plan, though. Oh, that's great. All right. So on to the show. Uh, so today we're talking about uh, serializable transactions um, and continuing on with, what is it, Chapter 7? Yeah, I probably should have looked seven. that up. Uh, yeah, chapter seven in designing distributed distributed uh, intensive apps. That's what that's what uh, uh, Stitchify uses is distributed. Yeah, yeah, is their, the, is their yeah, database yeah, platform. Yep. So yeah, all good. Uh, and <laughs> so we talked a little bit last time, uh, and we're talking about again how um, testing for concurrency is really hard because it's non-deterministic. I, I can run the same test you know, multiple times and depending on which one kind of, you know, hits first, I get different results. And so how do you know, you know, if you tested the correct uh, condition? So one way to uh, get around this is to just stop that from happening. Um, make your, uh, make the transactions serializable. So when, you know, we talk about serialization, we talk about basically taking some sort of, you know, code or data, whatever, and turning it into, uh, you know, serializing it into another format in order to, uh, in this case, in, or, in order to order it. The term serializability does keep throwing me off because I just keep thinking about like JSON serializability and well, know, serializing from code objects too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, really, I think that we're, we're, when we're saying serial here, we mean like serial versus parallel. Like, we're talking about yes. doing things, one single thing doing it instead of having like multiple things that could be doing. Yeah. yeah. And but uh, I do uh, you know there's we've got the transaction log in play here too so I like I kind of wonder if it's a little bit of both but I I don't know well I mean no, kind of I think it it is what Outlaw said it's all about the parallel first. versus the serial and it sucks because the word serializability messed me up too when I was reading through this because it's like man this the, it's it's an overloaded term for I think what we what we do day to day. And but, I just keep thinking about the transaction log and like putting things in order, but that is, yeah, that's really not what we're talking about here. Yeah. So, I mean, really the, the answer is as crazy as it sounds it's like, Oh, you're having a bunch of concurrency problems. Stop doing things multi-threaded and just do a single thread. And it sounds so anti like so, how to solve the problem, right? It's like, Oh my gosh, I have a problem at scale. Well then don't do things at scale, Yeah, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But that's literally what, what the, what the answer is here. And like, it's, 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 trying to figure out like okay well that sounds great right but (laughs) what's the reality of trying to make that actually happen like how do i do that right so it is oh go ahead well i was gonna say the interesting thing is they say that this problem has been around and being discussed since the 1970s of course so yeah that's crazy 
And uh, it, this, you know, doing this things this way is the strongest level of isolation. It's the best solution, but you know, it's kind of hinted at. There's some problems with it. Um, so in this case, uh, the, the upside is the database prevents all race conditions, so your application code doesn't have to worry about it. Uh, even if your transactions run in parallel, they're guaranteed to act and result as if they had run one at a time, uh, you know, one after another. And uh, you know, what's what's the downside here? So in order to talk about the downsides, we have to talk about the ways that you can do this. And uh, I think there were two or three different kind of uh, implement three three different ways of doing it. Uh, first being, well, that's the yeah. That's what we're going to get into. Yeah, sorry, I'm still waking up. Did anybody um, else when they heard three not think of like the holy hand grenade? Thou shalt <laughs> do it. <laughs> yeah, not once, not twice, <laughs> not four. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. All good. Um, but we do. Uh, Wait, the book kind of dives in. Why am I? The, why? Hold on. What? You know what that reference is from, Jay Z? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Monty Python, uh, Holy Grail. Yeah. Monty Python's quest for the Holy Grail. You do it. I mean, I, I assumed it was a Monty Python reference, but I'm trying to remember the, oh. the scene. Oh, man. Oh. When he's reading off the thing about how they must throw the holy hand grenade, thou shalt not do it once or, or wait three seconds, right? It's, you shall not wait one second. Thou shalt not three wait. shall two. be the number. Right? Yeah. Three. No more than three. I, you know what? Internet, Five I is failed right you. I, I am yeah, coming to a blank. Like, I think this is, I think what we are witnessing here is this is when, like mark this date. This is when the dementia started. Like this is <laughs> this is the beginning of the end for me because I'm. Wow. Yeah, you're usually Mister Obscure Reference. Like you get them all. Well, that's I mean, not like, even I, so obscure. I did. I as soon as I heard it, I was like, okay, I'm pretty sure it's a Monty Python reference, but I don't remember the scene. Oh man, wow. it's so good. All right. we, we just, oh, that's uh, depressing. Caught you out. Yeah, and now we know where uh, which which table Alan sat at at high school. You know, uh, Alan was with the nerds and Outlaw. Outlaw's doing cool kid stuff. I guess that's right. That's right. Cool kid stuff. Whatever that is. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know either. Uh, oh, man, good stuff. So yeah, you should watch that whole movie again. Yes, for punishment. Uh, I, I will. I will. I will take that as homework. Yes. All right. So this chapter doesn't really dive into the particular solutions that I mentioned um, too deeply. We just talk about things in terms of a, a node database, and then uh, it actually dives into multiple multiple nodes in chapter nine. So it skips a chapter and then kind of picks back up with uh, dis- distributed systems. And I don't know if you looked at the title for uh, chapter eight yet. That's like the problem with distributed systems. And uh, yeah, I feel like we've already been talking about the problem, so I'm kind of scared about that one. I haven't <laughs> like, read it yet. Have we been doing this as we've been going along? Right. Yeah. All right. Anyway. So, hey, the first one that, that they actually talk about is the one that we're spending this entire episode on because there's actually a lot here. And it's true serial execution, right? Like run one right after the other. So, yeah, the easiest way to get rid of race conditions is to just do it that way. No concurrency whatsoever, right? Like everything that comes in, you're like, hey, get in line and we'll do you next. It's funny. It kind of sounds like this would have been the first one that he would have started with, you know, things being single threaded and whatnot, but it's not. Um, the book says that this was only really, uh, people only really got around to it in 2007. And the reason is because uh, things were just too slow before then, you know, the computers, the lack of memory, all that stuff made it so you just really couldn't uh, scale up enough in order to support this. So 2007 was the first time. Do you remember what database it said was the first one that 
I didn't that, see it. I don't I think don't they think. mentioned a first database just no. that, that did it. Um, yeah, they linked to a paper, but um, yeah, I, I didn't see if the paper was tied to a, a particular database. Well, I can look to see the paper, but the <clears throat> I kind of was like reading between the lines here and just kind of assumed that, well, maybe because the, the author didn't go into this part of the detail. So this is where I was like reading in between the lines was that maybe like we as, you know, a community were getting like thought we were being creative by trying to do things in, uh, you know, multiple threads and, and, you know, thought like, Oh yeah, this obviously this will be better. And, you know, realized that it wasn't, but you know, maybe at the time, uh, to his point about the being able to do things in memory and whatnot that, uh, you know, based on the hardware that we had at the time that that was, you know, maybe a, a more performant way based on what we had. But over time they learned that like, Oh, I guess that's not actually so great and it creates more problems than it solves. Well, I mean, that's, that's where they start talking about like, Hey, why did it start becoming a thing in 2007? Right? Like, so the problem's been discussed since the seventies. Why did it take them almost 40 years to start doing this? Right. Why did it take us 40 years to do everything? So that was described in the seventies. And what were they doing in the seventies, man? Like, (laughs) I mean, let's see, we had kiss coming around Aerosmith, black Sabbath. I mean, it was a great time, I guess, but yo, like what, like, why was it all the great computer like thoughts were made then or thought of then, but they didn't get implemented until now. Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, this is where they say, Hey, Ram, finally became cheap enough to where you could store an entire data set in memory. Like it was, it was only about them when we started to have that flip to where you, you didn't have to have everything on disc. And they said, basically, if you can have it all in memory, it's way faster, right? Because you're not having to wait on the IO to the drive in order to do some of these things. By the way, that reference was not to uh, uh didn't reference a particular database. It was just a white paper. Yeah, I got that. The, the the name of the paper is um, pretty funny. I just uh, closed out tab though. But the end of the architectural era, it's time for a complete rewrite. And I was kind of wanting to see if there was some database that was um, inspired by it. I was going to ask Chat, Chat GPT. Oh, so, so here we go. Yeah, confidently totally wrong. wrong. Well, I don't. I've I I don't know. I'm pro. I'm still loving it. Uh, and as wrong as it is, uh, asking humans and Google uh, also very wrong. <laughs> so, I was going to just say, like, are, have any databases been inspired by this yeah. paper? So oh, while we can keep going. That. It's probably not yeah. going to turn out well. So basically, RAM became it, it became cheap enough to buy RAM, a lot of RAM, and we could get RAM in large quantities on a single stick. So therefore, you could have an obscene amount in one machine, uh, which, you know, obscene amount by... 2007 standards is like what you you probably have more in your iphone today right <laughs> yeah, like, yeah but but anyway so that that was part of the thing is that that it was becoming cheaper that you could avoid some of that overhead of trying to manage the m- multiple threads now and just do it all in memory yep and then they also at the same time they had people looking at the the, the designers of databases looking at hey what what actually happens in a lot of these online transactions, right? Um, and they found that they're usually short-lived and they're really small reads and writes. And so 
they figured they, hey, they can just be run on a consistent snapshot using snapshot isolation, which, which we talked about in a previous episode, outside of the serial execution loop. So, so basically, if you start from a steady state, then you can do these updates and it's real fast and then you can move on to the next one. Well, they also talked about, and I think it was this part, correct me if I'm wrong, where they talked about like, <clears throat> uh, the author talked about being able to push readers off to replicas and, and the writers could be focused on, uh, just the, you know, wh- whichever one had that right. Um, I remember seeing that task. somewhere. So that yeah, way, that way, like in terms of like analyzing your traffic that's coming to the database, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if 90% of, of your traffic is just readers, then you don't have to have them go through that single thread, you know, on, on the one that can control the rights. So that way you can kind of, um, improve that performance, but that's where part of that snapshot isolation comes into play. I think it comes in on a little bit later, but we'll be getting to it today though. I believe when we get into partitioning, uh, by the way, uh, touch GPT did confirm what, uh, I was saying, which is that there was no direct descendant with this paper, like kind of like the dynamo paper, you know, like, there was the Dynamo paper and the then Dynamo, but it did mention uh, three databases that were heavily inspired by it, and mentioned uh, it was Cassandra, uh, Bigtable, and Dynamo. Bigtable, yeah, <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah. So, um, sometimes single thread systems can perform better than concurrent ones, which is pretty interesting. Like you just kind of think of concurrency as being ultimately faster in terms of a clock time, you know, something taking you know are like humans perception of time. So maybe it's taking more time in CPUs, but generally, you know, in terms of uh, observed time, it, it goes faster, but it's not the case. Um, and not always the case, I should say. Um, so in the case where, uh, we've got a single core, there's not as much overhead, like things just kind of, you know, do the instruction in a very simple way, which is nice. But if you've got a transaction that needs to, or sorry, not transaction. Um, if you've got, uh, concurrent, um, concurrency going on. You've got thread switching. You've got management overhead. You've got uh, bad stuff um, that could potentially you know, happen. It has to be dealt with if the things line up just right. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more ahead of time. But just wanted to kind of point out that um, single threaded doesn't mean slower. You know what's kind of crazy here though too is that um, in the time that this w- was becoming a thing in 2007, right? <clears throat> I just searched it up because I was curious the the first multi-core processor was uh, invented in 2001 or at least introduced in 2001 by IBM so remember like we used to have physically different gigantic processors that you know like it was a big deal to buy a multi processor motherboard and then you know you'd have to buy the two processors multiple fans or whatever your cooling system was it's probably fans, but, uh, or heat sinks, I guess it was probably just heat sinks too, though. Right. Like that was a thing. So at any rate, um, but you they were know, much smaller than, the- but <laughs> yeah. But then as it became available to where you could just do this all on a single chip, we're like, nah, we're going to go back to single <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just single right, thread, all the things it right. turns out that's faster. You know, my like, CPU heat sinks are like bigger than my video card now. <laughs> yeah, they can be for sure. So, so you were talking about the the single core, and you're that's what you've got, right? The problem with that is you're bound by a single core. Like you can't you can't take advantage of of more if you're doing the serial transaction. 
And yeah, you can't, you can't scale up in that regard. And they say that you also have to set up these transactions differently. Um, which, which is interesting. Like you have to think about it different, but we also didn't mention which databases currently like the popular, I guess ones, which I don't know. Are they all popular? Um, Volt DB, which we talked about at the opening, uh, in H store, uh, Redis and Datomic. Yeah. I, I mean, I've heard of Redis. I hadn't heard of Datomic or, um, Volt DB. No, I don't really think of Redis as being a database either, but I mean, it stores data. You know what's funny about that? I had the same exact thought. I actually typed into Google, is Redis a database? And it takes you to Redis's page where they say that Redis is a database. Yeah. And they're getting into streams now. There's Redis streams that are kind of like lightweight Kafka streams. It's kind of everything. Yeah. I mean, it's just a very simple, you know, because it's a key value type storage, but. Yeah. yeah, I mean, storing data and they it's just keep ex- extending their boundaries a little bit to kind of grow into different spaces, which is cool. I mean, it's a smart move on on their part. Hey, so real quick, this I always love an opportunity to bring this back to the uh, Stack Exchange, um, their performance thing, how they set up their infrastructure, and talking about having a database in memory. So if you go to that page, which is stackexchange.com slash performance, um, and you scroll down, they have two Redis servers that they use to serve the caching part of this. They each have 256 gigs of RAM, right? So that goes back to the, you could store entire data sets in RAM. And that's why they can do some of this because you can have servers with just obscene amounts of RAM nowadays. So pretty cool. I always like going back to that because anytime I see it, I'm like, man, they they actually run super lean in terms of hardware, and it's pretty interesting to watch it. Oh uh, yeah. So um, on to uh, one of our old favorite topics: uh, sort procedures, and uh, it kind of gives it. We actually just talked about this last episode, or maybe two episodes ago. With um, we just kind of hit back onto it. We used to talk about store procedures a lot more back in the day uh, when we were dealing with less databases. Uh, but uh, in this book, they talked about how in the early implementations, databases had the intention of making the entire flow part of the transaction. So um, if you were booking a flight, for example, the person might be shown a list of the flights. They kind of click in. They look at the seats. They, you know, add their <laughs> baggage options. You know, they check whether they want like aisle or whatever. And then at the end, they do it uh, and commit and the transaction would be committed, which if you think about it, you know, it's kind of crazy that we might be holding up a transaction all this time, but you know, there's queries going back and forth and we can't do that all as part of one, uh, single store procedure because there's, you know, a human involved at multiple parts of that step. And so we don't know even what queries we're going to run, you know, if they're hitting back button or whatever. So, uh, you know, nowadays when we talk about transactions, like that's not what we're generally thinking about at all, but that, that was the original kind of thought process there, which is, um, you know, which is pretty interesting. And you can imagine that being single threaded, like terrible. <laughs> like it's almost like, uh, there's a, like a, you know, a Starbucks or something. You've got someone on the counter and there's only one <laughs> freestyle working right? <laughs> and like, everyone trying to buy a plane ticket is like waiting for whoever's first in line to kind of pick their seat, which is just crazy. And then if they decide not to, or they go, you know, get the laundry out of the, whatever, move it to the dryer. Uh, everyone's just sitting there waiting uh, for that transaction to commit, which is unfeasible, especially so for a uh, single core. Uh, serializable. I just, 
when he was describing that part of the, you know, where you were keeping the, the transaction open, you know, like I, maybe there's like, okay, we already established that some dementia is setting in, but I was like, wait, have I ever worked on an application where we did something like that, where we would like open up a transaction, query the database for something be like, oh, okay, I need more input from the user. Let me keep this transaction open, go back to the user, get some more information, then go back. I'm like, I don't think I ever did anything like that. But then also I was questioning like, well, maybe that's because like, maybe this was a thing. Like if you were a mainframe developer or something, maybe that was more of a a thing then. That's exactly where my head Definitely in a web world. I'm like, I just, Uh I, how would you do? Why? Who does kind of do something similar is uh, Ticketmaster. Um, when you like kind of go pick uh, your seat, hold a seat. We're holding like, you got to check out in two minutes, or you're gonna lose these seats, right? Yeah, I mean that's sort of like a forced way around it at this point. But yeah, I had but the you, same thought, outlaw. Like seriously, same thought. You don't have to do that with the open transaction though for the Ticketmaster thing though. That's not no, like they're not doing an open transaction. I'm sure yeah. but they're sort of faking the same type thing that that used to happen back in the day. Yep. This is more like what we're talking about here is more like, hey, sorry, the computer's in use right now, so uh, you <laughs> right. got to come back. Right. There's there's already an open transaction. Hold, please. Mom, yeah. get off the phone. I need to use the internet. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Now you should like try that. buying your plane tickets in the middle of the night because it's less traffic. Uh, isn't that crazy? That's probably the type of thing that would have happened. Yep. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so where were we? So, um, yeah, it seems totally crazy in the modern kind of web world, but um, there can still be situations where the transaction can uh, occur with multiple interactions, you know, kind of like we mentioned with like Ticketmaster, the seat picking thing is a good example. Um, but these are now up to the application to kind of query and see if it's available and then, you know, send another query and see if it's still available, you know, have the customer kind of switch around. Oh, we know we covered that, but, uh, Doing it this way in a serial transaction database would be slow. I'm just repeating the same stuff. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I mean, but that, that makes sense. So what they called out here that's important is the, the one that we talked about a second ago that seemed insane, right? Like let a person start a transaction and then finish it 10 minutes later. With an in-memory database and the way that they have to handle transactions, you even even though your application server can talk to the database way faster – still having those interactions to where, all right, let me go see if it's available. Okay. It's available. Let me lock it. All right. Now let me try and let me try and add it and then make sure that it didn't conflict with something else. All those interactions take time. There's latency across network and everything. So it's still a problem if you're trying to do these serial transactions. So it it is important, even though it's way faster, it's still an issue. But I didn't read this part as like having necessarily anything to do or any dependence on the memory comment, like the amount of memory, because they actually referred to, you know, this SQL, I'm sorry, uh, stored procedures becoming a stand, a SQL standard in 99, which was, you know, eight years before that article that talked about rewriting everything to, to do things serially. So the, really the point that I got out of this part, part was that <clears throat> by doing everything in this, by pushing that logic into the stored procedure, then you were reducing the latencies needed to like get information. You could just do everything really quickly in one transaction and be done with it. And, and so like the, the example that the 
author gave in one of the diagrams was like, okay, you, you go back to that on call thing, right? Where like you're, you would select that doctor's on call schedule and then, you know, so, so one transaction was for that. Then you would do some if logic. You're like, okay, well, I guess I need to update that thing. And then you would go back to the database again to do the update. And instead they consolidated all of that into one inside of the stored procedure where it's like, okay, let me select the value. And as part of the stored procedure, if the value is greater than this, let me do the update. And it could happen, you know, in a much tighter time frame. Yeah. And, but that was the important thing, right? Is having to do it in a stored proc instead of, um, your application managing the transaction, like you can do in some databases, right? Like you could open up a transaction in, in SQL server in your app code and, and do a bunch of things there and then commit it at the end. This, like the Redis and the Volt DB and those, they want it in a stored proc so that you give it everything it needs at once and then it can do everything it needs in that stored proc. Yeah. I mean, it actually, I mean, we've talked about before, you know, or at least I've talked about before where like I'd worked on, um, applications in the past where you know all database logic we pushed into stored procedures so that you know you the developer it had several advantages right like you the developer are less aware of like the underlying schema for like tables and columns and things like that you only care about like the stored procedures and the inputs and outputs type of thing uh so it abstracts some of that plus you were keeping the data logic close to the data right which i don't know over the years we've kind of like grown you know maybe drifted away some because we're like, well, it's easier to uh, horizontally scale some of that logic if you put it in your app code because you can't scale the database code as well. But this part of the chapter kind of like, I don't know, kind of reignited that that old love affair that I had with the the other architecture. Where I'm like, oh, that is kind of neat. You know, you know, good points about uh, why you could do that. But he also, going back to the VoltDB, talked about like some of the distributed systems where I, I thought this was such a cool idea where in order to, instead of like writing to one and then letting the change replicate out, it would do the exact same store procedure call on every instance. And then that way, you know, there was no networking sync needing to be synced between the, the replicas, but it did rely on whatever that store procedure does has to be deterministic and like, calls for like if you needed to get like a date time for example that they had specific calls uh or apis that would produce the same exact result on every one of the replicas and i was like oh man my mind blown like i want to see how that code works <laughs> that that code i want i want volt db to distribute that code so i can see that code so <laughs> Hey, and, and also for those following along in the book, the, there is a really good diagram showing the difference between like a, a regular transaction versus the serial one with the stored proc where everything has to get passed in. That's figure seven, nine in the book. So, um, if you have it, go take a look at that. I didn't realize we were going to start referencing the figure numbers. Well, this one was good. I'm like, and you know, obviously the notes then. <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to screenshot it, put it on the page, right? Like we're gonna get in trouble. Hey, so it's it's that time. Hey, Jay Z, you gonna do this one? Yep. Oh uh, man, I think <clears> we still have so, some stuff. To yeah, no. Uh, I would like to ask y'all to uh, please consider leaving a review with uh, whatever number of stars you feel is appropriate, preferably it's five. Definitely five. 
<laughs> five. Definitely five below those fives. Like I yeah, it's kind of silly that uh But they even leave, let you do a four? Like that's silly. Yeah, these are two ones or fives. Like ones are for bombing and uh should all just be like kind of removed algorithmically, and then the five should be, you know, uh just kind of a count of your popularity. Like let us let us let people know how cool we are. Right? Let people know that you like us. Let us know. It's great. Are you sit- seated at Alan's table or? Yeah. Yeah. Sit out. Sit out hang out with Alan's table. Like, screw Alan's table. Right? Let this him know. a dark turn fast, man. Like, Let those bullies first know. Of all, first of all, this became so weird because suddenly, like, I'm the cool guy is what you were saying. And that, and now it's like also screw me. So, like, oh, wow. That's. Yeah, it, see, this it is got why, like really good there for a moment and also took a really quick turn this is why i'm not allowed to ask for reviews it's not even so much the one star thing as it is like my uh whenever i do it, it's like this weird fever dream of like words <laughs> that are kind of loosely related to reviews um so if you want more of that i guess you should you should leave a review Jay-Z. and you can do it we try to make it easy that slash review the word salad jay-z that's yeah good. It's a jumble it's a mix <laughs> Toss it around. Oh, man. All right. So uh, with that, it's time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says. All right. So to Tutko's trademark rules of engagement, Alan, you are first. Yeah, let's see if it works. Are you going to try to win this time? (laughs) I try to win every time, man. (laughs) I know. It's sad. All right. So, name a specific piece of furniture that might be handmade. Table. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's go with a piece of furniture. Uh, swing. <laughs> a swing. That's that's furniture, right? It yeah. is. All right, I'll so be so bad if you get more points than me on this one. <laughs> yeah, <for real. laughs> Nobody's making couches. Let's face it. Yeah, right. So uh, Alan says table. Joe says swing. So the number one answer on the board. You know what? No, let's go backwards. Oh man. So there were seven answers on the board. Number seven answer is bench for two. Cabinet for two is the sixth. The fifth answer, bed for two. What? Fourth most popular answer is dresser for five. Third most popular shelf or bookshelf for oh my. 12. Swing number two. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now we, we could. This is where there's there's there can be debates made, but I don't know. I think I want to just shut some stuff down, but I'll let you guys have your debates. (laughs) Number two answer on the board is 31 points chair. And number one, the number one answer (laughs) for 41 points is table. Look at that. I'm sorry. I I mean, I meant table. A swing is really kind of like a table with roof on it. <laughs> See, I was expecting you to say it's really like a chair. No, were you really I'm, I'm expecting that? <laughs> what a win, outlaw. Okay, well, um, you're, off to, a swing ro- you're a- off to a rocky start there, my friend. <laughs> swing yeah. is a chair with ropes attached. 
<laughs> you know, honestly, I think they should have said bed frame, not bed, because who's stuffing mattresses, right? Yeah, I agree with that. Well, they didn't say mattress. They just said bed. But yeah, sure. Uh, but yeah, honestly, I These expected people. some some pushback on the chair, you know, like a swing being a type of chair that's just on on strings. But no, chairs suck. Yeah. Swings rock. <laughs> right. <laughs> way better. Swings are way better. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, so, Jay-Z, name something hey. you find in a breakfast buffet. Oh, and your choices are not just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think I know the obvious answer, but there's also the things that I want to see in a buffet. And so I kind of am tempted to, uh, say one of those anyway. So, uh, I'm going to go with sausage, even though it's not number one, mm. it's, it's from the heart and that matters. <laughs> this is tough. Do I go eggs or bacon? Um, I gonna put eggs. Let's say eggs. They're going to be cold, though. They are going to be cold. Or dry usually out. runny, too, because yeah. they don't cook them well. Yeah, it, it, yeah. no matter what, you know those eggs are going to be bad. They'll be there. But they'll be there. Yeah. That's not from the heart. All right. Number seven answer on the board. Melon for two points. <laughs> Number six, coffee for six points. Fifth most popular answer, orange juice for seven Number four answer on the board, potatoes slash hash browns for 12. Sausage is the third answer for 19 points on the board. And it's way better than bacon, by the way. Ooh. Bacon is the number two answer for 24 points. And bacon, bacon just slaps your sausage around. And is like, get out of here. This is so basic. So basic. <laughs> it's so None of it's cooked better. right. None of it's cooked right. But it never is on a buffet. Never is. <clears throat> you know what, though? They make up for it with quantity. <laughs> they do. So you, you just, just got like, it off. <laughs> you, just, you just take the tray and you dump that on your plate. And you might have to get a second plate. Just like sandwich it to hold it together to get it back to your table. And then you got like, you know, eight pounds of bacon. Yeah. Yeah. And a heart attack. Uh, number one answer on the board, waffles for 25 points. <laughs> no way, dude. Are you serious? No, it was eggs. I just, okay. wanted, to <laughs> 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 oh, I just wanted to give Alan a little bit of a heart attack. But honestly, why is it waffles or pancakes somewhere on the list? Waffles should be there. It's yeah, always I guess the, the people thing. are thirsty, right? Like coffee and orange juice. Come on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's the biscuits? Melon. I, dude, I actually thought biscuits, yeah. gravy. Clearly, oh. they've never been to a, a breakfast buffet in the South. Right. Say. Yeah. Like we All have right. liquid heart attack. We have heart attack from a pig. We have heart attack from a chicken. That's right. All right. That's well, right. Uh, as is tradition, Alan, you get to pick the final. You ready for this? I am. Where where are we at? We are two answers in. Alan has a commanding lead at 66 points to Joe's 19. So just a short, small, a little, a little bit of a deficit there. From the heart. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that Jay-Z, I think you lost this one. I don't know that it's going to matter because for whatever question he picks, you pretty much have to nail the number one answer and it has to be like so ridiculously popular. Like it has to, 
it has to, you know, and you are really hoping that he messes up entirely. This is where strategy could come into play, right? Like you're getting ready to give me three categories and I can choose the most obscure one, which almost guarantees that nobody's going to have a good answer for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 All right. So I've seen enough movies to know that I'm going to win though. Oh, right. (laughs) I always wins. Okay. I'm the main character. (laughs) (laughs) Who's seen that Reddit? Anyway, that's wait. wait, Deadpool. Is he the good guy or (laughs) obviously is he he the, I don't know what he is. Obviously, he's a good guy. Yeah. <laughs> um. <clears throat> all right. So here are your choices, Alan. Name a planet. Name something you have to do that would give you a reason to set an alarm to wake up to. Or name something you haven't done since high school gym class. Let's do the gym class. All right. Skip that. (laughs) Well, then that could be your answer. (laughs) I haven't skipped it. Climb a rope. Okay. So your answer is climb a rope. All right. Was that seriously? That was seriously your answer. No, seriously. Okay. I wasn't sure because you jumped in so fast there. Okay. Uh, Jay Z. Uh, (laughs) Change clothes in front of a bunch of classmates <laughs> true <laughs> i've done that in a long time all right you uh, know what it's either change a rope or climb a rope or it's play kickball i guarantee it's one of those two is number one kickball's come back well but it's, it's climb a rope that, okay, that was my rope. answer yeah okay. yeah Exercise is the number nine <laughs> answer <laughs> on the board. Just generally, I haven't exercised since high school gym class. Uh, that is sad. That's something people? about our people. All right. So that was only two points, though. Okay, that's good. Only two people. Tennis was number eight on the board for oh, two points. Fancy. Yeah, exactly. That's this what I thought. in California. Like, who was playing tennis as part of high school gym class? We had square dancing instead of tennis. Ooh. Yeah, we had tennis also. Wow. Tennis. Fancy. Like, not because you're on the tennis team, but because the coach is like, okay, today we're going to learn tennis. Yeah, even even how to score it and everything. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> well, I forgot. Alan is from the UK, so they do things different <laughs> over there. Oh, yeah. Well, we had our tea and crumpets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody across the pond is going to take offense to that. Like, Wait yeah, a minute. Please don't. Please don't take offense. We would never it. have tea and crumpets that early in the morning. <laughs> I don't even know what that, what crumpets are. Like, is that like a little biscuit cracker or something? I, I don't what is it? <laughs> okay. Wow. I'm going to get some hate mail now. You can direct that to, uh, um, hit me up on Slack at Joe. There you go. Uh, <laughs> so, what what number are we on? Uh, number seven answer on the board for three points. Change in a locker room. Wow! Look at Jay Z getting an answer. Jay Z on the board. We he is now tied with Alan. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry. He is 44 points behind Alan, so he needs Alan to get a negative score here. <clears throat> I'm just saying, I called it. Um, Number six answer on the board is swim laps for five points. 
Lift weights is the fifth answer for eight points. Number four answers, sit-ups slash crunches for nine. Push-ups is the number three answer for 21 points. Number two answer on the board for 23 points is dodgeball. And the number one answer for 25 points, run a mile. Oh, man. Wow. I got zero. So... I would say you had a chance, Jay Z, but really, you oh, didn't. God, let's do the math. Let's do the math. No. <laughs> oh my gosh, could it be? Hey, you know who's on a winning streak now, right? <laughs> That's right. Wait, did That's you win right. last time? I thought Jay Z no, won no. last time. I'm starting a new streak. Oh, this yeah. is the starting a new streak. Okay, <laughs> That's, right. That's where I messed up. That you know what? That's my bad. <laughs> That's right. I should have recognized that. That's my bad. Okay. <laughs> Well, yeah. So uh, with that, uh, Alan is on a, a winning streak of one. Yes, yes. And how uh, can you sleep at night with those answers? <laughs> <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself, sir. <sighs> okay. Well, let's get back to the book. You know, I was reading a, a good book on the history of glue. I just can't oh. put it down. <laughs> oh. so we can, we can get back. To- we can get back to this book, though, in the meantime. So, all right. Weren't we already talking about this part, though? The pros and cons of. Uh, yeah, we the, just talked about like a week, store two weeks ago. We didn't talk about the pros and cons of them. We talked about the fact that they sort of need to be used in these um, oh, okay. serial, serial transaction DBs. Yeah. And this is funny. So they say that they get a bad rep. And I know all three of us have heard people complain about story procedures at some point in our careers. And they actually named out some reasonable reasons in the book. One of them is each vendor has their own language, their own implementation, right? Like T-SQL looks different than PL-SQL looks different than P-SQL and you know, so on, so on. So that's one of them. And I agree with that. Like the the – the syntax, the language, all of it's just different. Um, well, they each have they they adhere to the ANSI standards for SQL, but then they add on to it, and so they'll have like their own little you know ways of doing certain things. Yeah, totally. And then they also mentioned and this one was pretty interesting that the SQL language hasn't kept up with other programming languages. So basically, what they mean is like you're not going to have all the functions out there that you're going to have in a regular language, which and makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, no generics, right? You can't type T everything. Um, and there were some other things that I actually um agreed with here. It's hard to manage code stored on a database server. So there's ways around it. Like we found out ways to to get stored procs into Git and all that kind of stuff or, or choose your, your – I actually thought that part was a little bit dated when he, when he was talking about the difficult to keep in source control. Like – that was the that was one of the complaints that was made here, and I, and I thought it was like seriously dated. Because it's, it's like, a little dated. There 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 are tools out there. So many tools out there for uh, to to like do things in like the migrations kind of format. Like Roundhouse is one, but there's Flyway DB is another. Uh, and that's assuming that you you even go that route. Like uh, you know, Microsoft had what was that other thing that they had that was like the the. The DACs, the DAC packs, DAC packs are using database projects and visual studio. Yeah. I mean, so there, there have been ways to do this for a long time that I just, it was hard to give credit to that one. 
So, but you know, that's being super nitpicky. Yeah, I was going to say, I think in fairness, though, like using Roundhouse or Flyway or something like that is learning a new process just to be able to get your stuff to deploy in a good way and and to put that stuff in source control. They're good solutions, but it's not as easy as, hey, just learn how to commit to Git and be done, right? Like it's it's not that brain dead simple. But I don't know. I mean, that's like saying you could make the same argument about any other language, right? Like, Oh, I just want to write my 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 Java class file or my C plus plus class file or C you know routine, and I don't want to care how to compile it and make it part of the library, right? Like doing the migration is just a way of getting it compiled into the database. So I don't know. It's to Maybe. me no. It wasn't like it's no much. It's no harder a stretch than to like you know, get up to speed with Maven or MS build or .NET build or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. That's sort of fair. I guess, I guess the, the only line in the sand I'd say there is as somebody, if, if you just work in .NET, then visual studio does everything for you. You probably don't even know what's going on behind the scenes. If you haven't been doing it for a long time and don't have to deal with build systems, right? Like it just is sort of magic. Sort of the same thing with IntelliJ to a certain degree. You have to know a little bit more. If you're using Maven or Gradle or something like that, you have to know a little bit more about it. But they can actually hide a lot of that stuff. With Roundhouse and Flyway, you are forced into the world where you have to understand how that stuff works. So I don't know. I mean, you make a valid point, though. This one's definitely thinner in terms of how how important this is. This was the weakest of all the reasons that they get a bad rep. Was my, yeah. It's kind of my point. The next one is legit. Harder to, to debug. Yeah. Um, it's a database, right? Like it has changing data. So, so you have to have something set up to be able to do your test properly and know that you're going to be modifying data all over the place. So that's one. Not saying that, like I, I remember in SQL Server, um, it was a SQL Server Management Studio came out with the ability to debug stored procs and you could actually step through them. And it was really nice. But you have to have your data set up in a way to where you can actually test the stuff that you need to test. Yeah, you couldn't really do it like line by line the same way you can with, with like code. Because you know, like it's kind of the whole query was, you know, whatever. But you could mouse over and see data and stuff. It was still much better than trying to put a bunch of print statements in. Yeah, totally. Um, and so we already said it's it's more difficult to keep in source control. Also pretty pretty lame uh more difficult to test so you can't like unit test something kind of the same way that you would um i guess more of what you'd be doing here would be integration tests this is the thing where i feel like we have failed we as a developer community across the globe have failed because i i have like every time we bring in like a new database engineer you know uh one of my first questions is like Hey, what kind of have you have you are you aware of any like ways to test your your database or or any of the routines or like how do you how do you validate things like and it's always you know there's never a really good answer for it. No. Yeah, it's like it's like total state manipulation all the time. So you can mock out stuff, you can make the table name dynamic, you can create fake data and run tests, but it's just all so awkward. Yeah, like you talk about the code unit tests being hard to write and maintain and people pushing back on it like database tests, like oof. Yeah, I mean, you, it's almost to your point earlier, I, I think Jay-Z said it a few minutes ago, like it's almost entirely integration test. So it, it's, and we, 
you know, going back to past episodes, we definitely prefer unit tests over integration tests just because the automation re- around trying to spin up a database or you just assume that this database exists and let me like just go connect to it. And yeah, so that that's awful too. I, yeah. Yeah. But, I really I wish mean, that there were there. It, society needs to solve that problem. Yeah. It's hard when you, when the whole purpose of a database is just keep changing data, right? Like, so it, it definitely is a harder problem to solve. Um, this one's interesting. I, I think it's gotten better over the years, but they say it's more difficult to gather metrics for monitoring. Like in your application code, you can just throw a metric in there and have it spit it out to something, whether it's Prometheus or whatever, right? In a database server, you're kind of tied to whatever they expose. And, and that's true. I mean, like I said, it's gotten a lot better. And if you're using anything in the cloud, they have all kinds of monitoring stuff around it, which is awesome. Well, I don't know. I mean, if we're talking about, like, I feel like we're, we're not comparing apples to apples there because on the one hand you talked about like comparing writing metrics out from your application and then compared that to metrics from some other application that's outside of your control which really, if you were going to compare apples to apples, it'd be comparing you putting out metrics in your application versus what your like uh, web server, like if you're using an engine, Nginx, for example, like what metrics is it pushing out? Yeah, sure. You're beholden to like whatever Apache has decided to <clears throat> output from that metric server. I think the, the more to the point here would be like, if you wanted metrics spit out as part of your, like if you're going since we're in the store procedure section right. here, if you wanted metrics being spit out as part of your store procedure to say like, Hey, this many records were read, this many were written, blah, 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 blah. blah. You can do that, but right. there's definitely like a latency hit that you can possibly take depending on like how those are, you know, like if you're logging those to another table, for example, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of, that's kind of gross. And, you know, there are some, like a Postgres where you can output things to like standard out or standard error. But um, I'm, I'm not sure about like, you know what the abilities are in like a Oracle for something like that. Um, but I would assume that it's there. Yeah, I totally yeah, messed not. up. I made the comparison between the engine and, and another application and we are talking about stored proc. So yeah, it'd be exposing metrics from your stored proc is, is more difficult than, than from like an application code. Um, so the other thing, and, and we've seen this, we've seen this so many times because databases are shared by tons of applications and tons of different developers. Somebody who puts together a store product that's not performant has, or can have massive repercussions on the entire system as a whole, right? Like you can be blocking things. You could, you could completely tank the database. Like there's all kinds of stuff. Like, uh, I remember deadlocks. back in, yeah, deadlocks. You guys remember like ORMs back in the day? Peeps, peeps, as much as people hate stored procs, there's probably more hate for ORMs from the standpoint that people don't know what they're doing when they're like, Hey, give me everything from this table and then do some operation on everything mm-hmm. in the table. You know, like it's easy to, it's easy to make something really bad. Yeah, ORM's definitely got a bad rep. Yeah, this one's pretty funny. So, um, so some of these issues have been, uh, you know, fixed over the years. So, modern scalable databases, some of the ones we've talked about, like Volt and Datomic and Redis, actually like use regular programming languages to write your store procedures. So you can do, you know, kind of like those constructs that you're used to, like loops and maps and stuff, which are typically not, you know, around in uh, SQL. I but guess technically, uh, that means you could unit test those store procedures then 
I didn't think about that when I was reading that part of the book. Yeah, it'd be kind of nice for you. Like that, that would make it easier to swap out the table and say use a virtual table or something without having to like entwine that in all of your every single statement in every line. Um, which sounds pretty nice, but it's kind of also like the people who write a lot of sequels sometimes don't necessarily know Closure or Lua or Groovy. So there's, you know, it's, it kind of, it's risky bringing on a different language to do one aspect of your work. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not too crazy about it, but. Well, I mean, it's good. Yeah, that's a good point. I But when I was reading that, that part of the book, I just thought that like, well, I, that maybe SQL wasn't the standard way to like query that. But maybe you are right. Maybe there's like there's the SQL layer on top, and if you wanted to do something more fancy, then you could do like a Java or Groovy to query VaultDB, for example. Well, I don't think so. Like with Redis, isn't it mostly just um a lot of times if you do an HTTP type stuff? I, I don't know what you do for their procs. I've never looked at it, but I, I don't know. I mean it, the. I think the only thing that you said there, Jay-Z, that I'd almost be like, well, is that really, do people that work in databases, do they only know SQL? Because, I mean, if you're working in something like MongoDB, you're not using SQL 90% of the time, right? Like, it's it's more of a declarative type mm-hmm. thing. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily tie, maybe 10 years ago, I would have said databases, you're looking at SQL. Nowadays, you know, depending on the type of data storage you're using. It's JSON. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's JSON or, or, or probably God forbid, it'll probably be YAML at some point, but well, I mean, to, to, to Jay-Z's point though, where I was thinking what you, what you were talking about was like, if we take Postgres as the example, right? Like, you know, you can use a SQL like be it, uh, you know, PLPG SQL or, or whatever to query that, but also you can do things in C if you wanted to. Now, how many of us are going to break out C compiler to go write? Let me write an, a, you know, this as an extension into Postgres. If my or, choices are Groovy, Closure, Lua, or C, then it's got a shot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, fair. That's fair. I, I think I'd do Groovy over uh, C, I think. I think C Sharp, uh, you could use it to write uh, Proxen for, for a SQL Server. I think I remember that as well. Or as a matter of fact, they'd even introduced being able to do things in R and maybe even Python at one they, point. They did. Yeah. R came out first in, I think it was 2017, and then in 2019, SQL Server 2019, I believe, is the one where they introduced support for running Python. And it was pretty cool where like you could uh, you know, execute execute the query and and manipulate the results in python but you want to remember you guys remember the funny part about all that though is nobody actually allowed it because that means you had to turn on some sort of flag in the database that said that you could run external code and so database administrators the globe wide were like nope yeah (laughs) not happening yeah it's pretty scary especially with like c sharp like uh you know you you don't deliver the script you would deliver the dll you have to like load it into where the sql server is installed you know which is just scary right Yep. Yep. Uh, when so when databases are in memory and the transactions are single threaded, then a store procedures can actually be really fast. You know that, that especially having memory is really quick, and that's one of those things that uh, you know wasn't really feasible in the seventies because of the limited resources. Uh, but with no I/O networking overhead, the transactions just kind of run through. Um, we talked about VoltDB, and yeah, so now. Uh, fun part. Uh, so we talked about things as if they're running on kind of a single, you know, like a single processor, uh, single transaction. 
But there is one trick that we can use here uh, that lets us do do a little better in terms of being able to kind of scale out uh, while still also running on a single machine, and that is partitioning. So we've talked about data partitioning before. Like we talked about several <laughs> did several episodes on partitioning data. Uh, but what we're talking about is basically kind of splitting things out. So if you have like a multi-tenant solution, you might have like a partition by tenant. Or if you have like something with, uh, you know, IDs or something, maybe you have like one through 100,000 over on this partition, and, you know, uh, or maybe you partitioned by the first letter of the first name or something, or just something to kind of split up your data uh, in a way that lets you kind of do things, you know. Um, but this is where like it comes back to the, to the, the thing that this book has like just beaten into our heads is that there's all these great capabilities out there, partitioning being one of them, right? But you have to truly know what your use case is going to be so that you could set that partition up the way that you're actually planning to use it. Cause like you just said, like, okay, well you could partition by the first letter of the tenant name, right? So every company that starts with uh, a Z is over in this partition, but we know that like, well, uh, the English language, at least, words aren't distributed evenly across the alphabet. So you're going to have hot spots on certain letters of the of that partitioning scheme. So okay, that already might be problematic, even if you were querying by that way. But what if the way that you're actually querying the data, the majority of the time, is by like uh, username or a tenant ID number or something worse? And so now you might have to like. Uh, you know, query, you know, join two other sets that aren't part of the same thing. Like you, you truly have to know what, what your use case is going to be to make sense of it. Yeah. Hey, you hey, get it really wrong. And before we go past this, for anybody who hasn't heard the term hotspotting before, basically, if you think about it, like, you know, the, like he just said with the, with the alphabet, the letter Z, there's not going to be anything that goes into that partition, but let's hey. say the letter S <laughs> It says Mr. Zach. It says Mr. Zach. My bad. Okay, there's one thing in that partition. So this stuff is always going to be fast, right? But if you're the letter S, right, for some reason, you're behind, you're in line with a million other people, right? So anything that happens there, if you're the millionth person in line, it's got a whole bunch of stuff to go through before it gets to yours. Whereas anytime Joe puts something in his, it's getting done immediately. So that's hot spotting, right? And and anytime you're designing a system, especially sharding or transit or, or partitioning or anything like that, you kind of need to know how your data is distributed so that you sort of get an even load across those partitions. So that's that's hot spotting in a nutshell. So I was I, I bring all that up because as I was reading this part of the book, I was kind of trying to think like, okay, well what like <clears throat> you know, it's twenty twenty three in reality, like, what does this mean? Like, how, how do you, how do you write your partition? How do you partition your data to where you do have single partitions for things? And maybe the best that I could come up with, and I don't know if this is a good example, but maybe like the keying in Kafka, you know, the deterministic type of keying that you would do in Kafka to make sure that it would go to a, you know, specific broker, specific topic, you know, within a topic, a given topic, you know, specific broker, specific partition kind of thing. But I wasn't sure if maybe you guys had a better example of like where this single partitioning kind of idea, like to visualize it in the, in, in the real world. Well, I think, go ahead. Sorry. 
No, I was going to say, I think, I think you sort of said it. If you were to envision your partitions as like, uh, um, a phone directory by, by the first letter of your last name, that's a great, that is a great way to do it. Yeah. But I'm talking about like, let's put this into like practical, like real application use now. Like let's not talk about it in theory, like a phone book, but like what's something in real. And so the closest thing that I could think of that might, you know, be the fit what the author is talking about here, I think would be like Kafka. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think Kafka does really interesting stuff. Um, another example, a system that I like for kind of thinking about partitioning is uh, elastic. So, uh, it's common in elastic sometimes to partition by date. So like every date has every day has a new index. Mm-hmm. And that means if you do a search, that says like, uh, you know, give me everything with the keyword red or something, then it can search each of those partitions, you know, like the keyword red doesn't really make sense for like sensor data or something like that. IOT type stuff that you might see with uh, daily partitions, but you just got to kind of imagine it and go with like search each of those partitions or, you know, like we're talking about transactions here. So it could run a transaction on each partition at the same time. And it also buys us the ability to have like um, nice retention periods, so like only keep the last thirty days of data because you know every thirty days you like kind of lop off. Uh, in that case, you're very susceptible to hot spotting. Like imagine the weekends are really quiet, but the weekdays are hot. Um, but there's also uh, Elastic has the ability to roll over indexes at certain uh, intervals, so like size, for example. So like every fifty gigabytes, create a new index and uses an alias that points to all of them. And then when you query, it can do two transactions. And if you have two part two. Um, they call it shards, but it's basically partitioned. So it's like, okay, so we're running the transaction on this shard and we're running a transaction on this shard. And then we put our uh, data together at the end. And we have something to kind of collate that. I mean, the <clears throat> partitioning by date, we've done that same trick in multiple databases. The three of us, we've, you know, we have been part of teams where we've done that in, in at the database layer and, you know, is a performant way of like, okay, here's today's worth of data and I want to age data out of the system. So I just dropped this entire partition for the oldest one. But this part of the book felt more uh, database kind of heavy, like like traditional SQL kind of database heavy. Because, you know, th- I guess I guess the I in my brain went, you know, down a very specific path because like all the stored procedure talk. Right. And so that's where I was trying to like wrap my head around, like, what what would it mean to partition the data in a single partition like that. Like I, I just couldn't come up with a good example for a SQL type database. You know, your, your traditional SQL is, type database. SQL type is kind of throwing me off. So I, I think I don't maybe understand your question, but how about this? What if uh, we're an airline uh, sales ticket sales company? And when you're setting up the system, it makes sense that you have uh, each airline be in its own partition. And that way they can go in there, they can modify their flights, they can do all their stuff that they need to without worrying about affecting others. The transactions are all going to work great. But we have this one use case where the customer goes to buy a ticket and they search across all. And, they, you know, they're buying those tickets and maybe they're doing, a, you know, a flight from here to Bermuda or, you know, somewhere, somewhere far away. And it involves stopovers. And so my first flight is with Southwest and my next flight is with, uh, I don't know, Air Hungary or something. And now we've got transactions that are going to roll across two different partitions. Okay. Yeah. I, I see where you're talking about now, but yeah, yeah, traditional SQL. I meant like, you know, your, your SQL server, Oracle's Postgres, whatever. But in this, it's, it's very similar to that, right? Like what they're getting at here is, I mean, let's, let's say that each customer was sort of um, evenly distributed in their data here, because that's what they're talking about in, if you partition your data in one of these um, 
you know, serializable databases or serial transaction databases, then you're not bound by a single CPU at that point, right? So you have the outlaw, the Underwood and the Zach um, customer partitions. And then if, if all three of us have something to come in at the same time, each core of the CPU can handle transactions for, for each of our, our customers. Right. So, but you basically, basically have three serial, uh, yes. Uh, processes per partition is what you're trying to say. You could have one, one process per partition. Right. So instead of only being bound by that single CPU thread that you had on the entire database, if you partition your data, the way that they said it is you're bound by the number of cores that you have on your CPU, right? So if you have a, a 32 core CPU, then you can have 32 partitions. And so you can parallelize, um, you know, up to 32 times. And maybe if we're talking about like distributed databases, like the Kafka example, then it's, you can horizontally scale the problem. Right. The interesting thing that they talk about here is, um, they even suggest you could move and I think you had mentioned it a little bit earlier. You could move the read only transactions off to its own thread. And then that way your writes are the only thing that you're having to deal with that, that you really want to multi-thread, but your reads could be because they're fast. Right. You could put those on their own off to the, you know, move those off to replicas. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we already talked about the cores and everything, so that's good. Now this, so Jay Z mentioned this a minute ago. Um, there can be somewhat of an issue if you have have some sort of proc that needs to go across multiple um, partitions, right? At that point, um, they said that you sort of have to manage. You you have to know how to manage this stuff to make sure that everything sort of stays in sync, which is sort of weird, right? Um, I would imagine that's a place where you can sort of get yourself in trouble in these. Um, but but you have to know how to write the store proc to know how to go across these partitions properly. I'm trying to like I'm trying to think of an example, like a real world example. Well, let's say, let's let's go back to where we've re- done this type of thing. Uh, us, I don't think we have, but I mean, we haven't actually worked in one of these serially um, transactional databases either. But let's say that we had our three customers in there, right? And all of a sudden, what was it? Southwest that recently had the thing where everything got shut down, like they couldn't, oh, they yeah. couldn't get anybody. December, on I think a, it was. Yeah, they couldn't get anybody on a jet, right? we need to update all customers and delay their flight three days, right? Um, To the same flight number, but three days out. All right. So now I've got to update outlaw um, Allen's flight company and, and Jay-Z's flight company. So now they're doing that across every one. So that would be a good example of where, you know, typically you're probably not even having to deal with that, but, but now you got to go push everybody back three or four days and give them all refunds. So, you know, that could be a situation. I mean, we, I know that we've definitely done some, you know, we've definitely been part of teams where we've done some, I don't know if you'd call it nasty tricks, you know, where like you, you just go ahead and don't rely on the system determining what the partition is for you. You go ahead and calculate that out yourself and uh, query it directly so that you can uh, skip to the heart of the matter rather than, you know, taking any overhead for letting it figure it out and bottleneck its way through it. But I, I, I couldn't come up with like 
I, I was struggling to like try to find, like think of like real examples that we've done. So we've never yeah, worked in a single threaded database either. Right. But I, no, I we have though. That's the point. That's the point. One? That's the point of this book or this chapter. Is that like, this is a thing since 2007. No, so, no, but I'm saying we haven't like worked in any one of these databases that forces anything serially. Right. Like the, no, the ones that's that the point is which that ones have we done SQL server Postgres. That's the point is that like when it comes down to the writing, that was my takeaway from this part, this chapter of the book was that, that, that pretty much across the industry, they had discovered like, Oh, Hey, if we serialize these rights, we can, uh, you know, get better performance. Oh, right? so yeah, they mentioned that, but most databases don't do it. Right. So that, that was kind of like the reason why they called out volt DB and Redis and the other one <clears throat> is most databases don't do it because of the performance issues or they don't do it by default. Like, so SQL server uh, supports it. If you set the transaction isolation level to uh serializable, but it's not the default and you'd have to go out of your way to do it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's kind of, that's sort of the big deal here is it's almost like most of the ones that do support this are very specialized in that the whole like Redis, right? Like it's, it's keeping everything in memory. I've actually heard of problems where people use Redis sort of as their database. And if the thing restarts, they lose everything. Right. And, and it's a, I'm sure there's ways around that kind of thing, but, but that's, that's what this whole thing is about is like, it's almost a very specialized thing because the reason why it's not more of a normal practice is because it's, it's a big performance hit if not implemented very specifically on hardware that can handle it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> one thing that was interesting here is out of all the databases that they talked about, VoltDB is the only one that they said could handle multiple partitions. So I, I'm guessing that means Redis isn't in there because I, I would have thought for sure that they would have mentioned them. So, and, and this is also why I went up and looked up VoltDB because I'd, you know, I was like, man, they're, they're talking about it a lot, but I've never heard of this thing. But they took a huge hit cross partition rights. Like it was eight times slower, I think was the the number. Did that they, they say gave. how much slower? I could have sworn I looked ten, for it. It said a magnitude, um, so order of magnitude, so 10. So if they su- oh, support 1,000 cross partition, it's 10,000 normal. That's right. Well, yeah, so plural times orders. Slower. I don't know where yeah. I got the eight from. It's that dementia, I swear. Uh, and hey, like we were saying earlier, this whole thing of trying to find out how many transactions you can support per partition, you have to know your data and you have to know how things are coming in across those partitions. Otherwise, you could really mess yourself up with this. Yeah, totally. Um, so key value data is likely to do well in single partition transactions because uh, it's a simple lookup. Uh, data with multiple secondary indexes is probably going to require cross-partition transactions. A good little rule of thumb there. Yep. All right. Well, we will have uh, cop- a link to this book and our resources we like. And with that, we'll head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. And I'm starting here. So I'm still on my AI, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, kick. 
So I'm using Copilot heavily. Um, Grammarly is another thing I like too. Um, it's not, I don't know if that's doing AI stuff, but I like it. It feels like the kind of productivity boost that I've been seeing from Copilot. If you remember, Copilot's the tool from GitHub that lets you kind of plug into your browser and you can write comments and it'll write the code for you or it'll just kind of suggest stuff almost like autocomplete. I love it. Huge fan. Um, I, I, don't, I forget how I found this, but I was just kind of looking around and found an additional extension you can install in VS Code called Copilot Labs, uh, which has some experimental features that you can install and it puts a new sidebar icon on the left, like next year, navigation, all that other stuff. And it has four major uh, windows. Uh, and they're like just top to bottom when you click on the icon. It's kind of the UX is a little bit weird. Hey, that's why it's experimental. Uh, it's really cool though. Uh, so the first one is code explanation. So what you do is on your window panel, like with a file open, you can select like a block of code, like a function. And it will, uh, you click the little button on the left to say explain this. And chat GPT, or sorry, GPT-3, whatever Copilot uses, um, is going to summarize that. And the way it does it is pretty well. It uh, is pretty good. It does it in like a bullet format. It doesn't do it in a paragraph, which I really appreciate. And uh, I, I did a couple of examples just to kind of try it out. And it did really well. Um, one of the examples I used uh, that I just tweeted about actually on the Coding Boss account was um, I had some code in Unity that was figuring out uh, the, what the normal vector was, which basically just means like um, <laughs> normal. It's, it's, I'm, it's hard to explain a... Uh, so it, like it kind of feel like if you're standing on an angle, then it's the the normal is ninety degree, degrees to the plane that you're standing on, which is very easy to see and kind of hard to explain in words. But anyway, it's it's kind of a thing. It's like a mathematical function where it's like if it's between these degrees and these degrees, and you get the tangent from the you know from the angle, and uh, it, it very quickly figured out that it was just getting the normal and kind of mentioned that was so that was nice kind of a cool example. And uh, it also called out specific things like um, there were some like build flags and stuff like so um, what do you call it like um, code process or, or um, pre-processing directives in the code. So I called those out separately in different bullet point and it was just really nice. So you can imagine like if you've got a function either that you are just having a hard time reading, uh, you can kind of do that and just you know get a nice little summary of what it does. Or it's kind of a cool way to check what you just did. Like if you've got a function that you just wrote that's like a little tricky like you could maybe try explaining it and see if like it explains it in a way that, you know, was what you intended, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, like a live rubber ducking, live rubber ducking. Yeah, it's rubber duck talking back to you. Uh, so, uh, next one is code translation. So if you want to take that block, you just selected and convert it to another language, really great for reading stuff. So if like you've got some stuff in like Python, you're like, not really sure what some of those functions do and you don't really want to go look them up and you don't want to get it wrong. Try converting it to a language that you're more familiar with. It's pretty cool. Um, the next one sounds really weird, but in practice it works out really easily. They call it IDE brushes. And when they say brushes, they mean brushes like you would use in like a Photoshop or a paint or something. Uh, and what you do here is you, <laughs> you select the brush you want to use. For example, uh, add types. If you're working in TypeScript and you've got some code that's using any, and it can figure out the types from the functions calls in some cases. So what you do is you select the brush for add types and you paint with it over in your window and it will automatically apply or suggest the uh, types for you. Well, that's pretty you hit tabs accept. Yeah, it's pretty nice. And it's also got things for fixed bugs. <laughs> so you can like say, hey, fix bugs with my paintbrush here. And then you kind of paint in the file and it will 
fix bugs for you. Uh, it also has brushes for improving uh, readability, resilience, uh, documentation with like JS docs type thing. It will like document the function above it. Um, and there's also a way to add custom brushes. I didn't see how you could actually write those custom brushes, but you can imagine how that might be a kind of cool thing where like maybe you've got some custom tools that you want to like implement at your workplace to say like, um, make sure this code isn't from Stack Overflow or, you know, something. And you just kind of <laughs> paint the file. That was really neat. And then the last one is also really cool, uh, test generation. So select a couple blocks of code and it will generate a test for you on the left. Um, it's only wor- That only works in JavaScript and TypeScript right now. So you can definitely tell what kind of demographic they're going after. Like several things kind of leaned heavily towards JavaScript, TypeScript. But uh, all of them are cool. It's totally free if you're already using Copilot, which is only 10 bucks a month. And if you're not using Copilot, you haven't tried it, super recommend it. It's a great productivity boost. And the thing I like most about it is that you don't really have to change your workflow. You don't have to learn some big crazy thing. You just install the extension, uh, click authorize, and it'll take you to GitHub to you know do the rest, like enter your payment, whatever, and kind of set it up. And aside from that, like it just starts suggesting stuff. And so if you want to kind of take it and go further and write comments and kind of explore some of the other ways you can interact with it, cool. But you're going to start getting that benefit immediately after installing it. It's just going to start suggesting stuff for you. You hit tab to take it. I actually had somebody mention this to me the other day. Like they just bought it It, because in their mind, they were like at 10 bucks a month, if it saves me an hour, it was worth it. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's a real easy way to look at it. And I assume Jay Z, you've been using this for a while. It's probably saved you more than that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Um, Aside from the actual like tangible time that it saves, it saves context switching. Uh, I wrote a little script the other day where like, I, you know, got a list of helm charts and I did some set, uh, did some awking to kind of, uh, extract some stuff. And then I did a little loop to go through and then do an X args to performance. So at the end of the day, it's very easy to say like, Hey, I want to get, uh, all the helm charts matching in pattern and delete them. But to do that, you know, it's like four or five, like bash, you know, kind of constructs or uh, programs that I don't really use that often. I have little flags and stuff that need to be entered. And that's stuff I, I would probably Googled, you know, at least half of those. Like even just the while loop at Bash, uh, I probably would have Googled for uh, to make sure that I got the syntax right and stuff. And I didn't have to do any of that. It just got it right the first time. I just had to test it. And I could easily see and read that code. But it just saved me from having to go out and Google a bunch of times and just kept my focus there on the single pane I was already working in. So um, whether or not it saved me an hour like no probably save me 10 minutes but it felt really good and helped me feel like i didn't lose the thread on the task yeah you can move on to the next thing quicker sounds like yeah. intellisense plus plus right totally totally so i think it's i think if you are not trying it out you're doing yourself a disservice like maybe you hate it you know fine but i do think that like fast forward five years from now i think everyone's gonna be doing it so might as well hop on so in the meantime, uh, Jay Z shared with us what a crumpet is, and uh, <laughs> uh, is oh, it good. just me? Like looking at the picture, like of of it on Wikipedia, like it kind of looked like an English muffin. The way it had like all the little, you know, the very porous top about it, you know. Yeah, that that makes me super love crumpets. Some some kind of bread <laughs> thing. Uh, English muffins may be one of my favorite things on this planet. Said yeah. no one ever. No, dude. Are you kidding me? The only sad part is they've gone up 50% at Costco, which really irritates me. I Really? <laughs> Jay-Z, are you a fan of English muffins? Is it my alone? 
You know, if I have any other choice, I'm going to take the other choice. But right now I'm hungry, so it sounds pretty good. Are you kidding me? You toast an English muffin and all those little holes are like little carriers for butter. Like, they're amazing. But if my choices are like a pancake, a waffle. Well, that's different. That's not fair. You went sweet to to bread. (laughs) Yeah, but like there's it's just at the bottom of the bread bucket for me. Mm. Yeah, def- it was always the bottom of the bread bucket for me. And your butter comment didn't help any because like nowadays, like the way Michael today versus Michael, you know, years past, like I eat. So my my menu of foods is so dramatically different now yeah. than what well, it used I'm, to be. Yeah, I'm not allowed to eat a bunch of butter. It's probably why I don't have any English muffins in the house right now. So. Well, first of all, I'm like all the carbs of the muffin and then the butter, like that sounds like a good way to just stop your heart from beating. Oh, so good. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you got to die somehow, right? (laughs) Death by butter doesn't sound like the way to go. Oh, man. Sounds great. (laughs) Uh, But yeah. Okay. So, um, all right. So for my tip of the week, um, we got this one in as an email and um, I thought I would share it. So Andrew wrote in, he told us of alt tab. So have you ever wanted a windows like alt tab experience on your Mac though? Yes. So you know how like on windows, if you alt tab to something, you'll see, first of all, uh, let's say, let's say that you had two Chrome windows open, right? In Mac, you, when you command tab between it, you'll see the, just the application, Chrome just the one on windows. Yeah. You'll see it. You'll see like, Oh, Hey, here's what was on this window of Chrome. Here's all this other window of Chrome. And for, you know, and it could be like word docs or Excel docs, whatever. Instead of seeing the one application, you see a picture. Like you can literally see like what that page was doing, you know, in the case of like a Chrome thing, right? Like you see like a, a miniature screenshot of it. So alt tab is a utility that you can install under Mac OS. And I think it goes back to like, yeah, 10.12 and newer, right? So it goes pretty far back and you can brew install this if you wanted to. Um, and it brings in that capability to your Mac. So now caveat this, I will say the one thing that made me super cautious is that, uh, there's like, you got, uh, sometimes you love and you also hate, when now this security minded world that we live in, where like uh, Apple and Google, or especially in, in, at least on mobile devices, but even Apple on like their laptops, will like, hey, do you want to give this app this one very specific permission? And you're like, whoa, that sounds awful. No. <laughs> so in order to do this functionality, it needs to be able to. It they were the way the operating system refers to it, like when it ask you like, Hey, do you want to allow this? Is it refers to it as screen recording? Right. So you're like, well, gosh, no, not when you put it like that. I don't want to do that. So, you know, that's the only, that was the only thing that gave me pause. So I'm throwing that out there in, you know, fairness that, that, you know, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you and you're like, whatever, I'm going to go on. Uh, I'll, I'll do it anyways. Um, it definitely gave me pause, but I am super curious to know, like, how widely used, uh, you know, if, if a lot of other people were like, no, 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 this thing's amazing. We, we use it in our company or whatever. And so, 
Hey, but check uh, this out. So on that, I think I know why they have to do the screen recording because just like in Windows, if you alt tab, it's going to show you that shot. Of, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. Yeah. But they did at least on the page. Now, granted, I don't know if you can actually, they've got a GitHub project. So maybe you could go look at the source code, but they have a privacy section directly on the page that you link to that says they don't send or receive any data without explicit user consent and basically only on crashes, right? Like, Hey, do you want to send us a crash report? So this is the honor system, right? Right. Um, which is, I also get like, I don't necessarily always um, believe the honor system and, so this is yeah. where, this is where like oh man like I'm so uh, I'm such a skeptic because like even even if even if they are doing the honorable thing like let let's just let's start from a, a positive place right um because this looks amazing like you look mm-hmm. at the screenshots of what this thing is doing like you super want to use this yeah and and, and by me and, and I bring this up as my tip of the week only because I'm hoping to find like other people also like I want to hear like other people's usage of it and everything but the problem I have not just with this software but like anything like this is it's like well that's fine today but who's right. maintaining it that I know that it's going to also be the same tomorrow. So like when it's the big back projects like Apache or, you know, backed by Google or Microsoft, then you're like, well, okay, there's, there's like a big player that's, that's maintaining that thing. But the smaller ones, it's just hard to, when you have to give up like some pretty serious, (laughs) you know, when you have to give up some serious permissions that you're like, okay, well, I just hope that somebody doesn't submit a PR, you know, three months from now that, but that's the skeptic in me. So, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. It's impossible, man. I'm right there with you. I, anytime something asks for permissions, I'm like, Nope, (laughs) sorry. But yeah. So if you're using this thing, like right in now, because that one's not a complaint, I use a different Slack handle. So at Michael and (laughs) you can complaints, use my, my complaint Slack handle at Joe, but at Michael for this one. And yeah, cause I would love to know, like, um, you know, uh, other people's use of it, uh, you know, what, you know, how it's worked out for them, especially like if it's, you know, proved it like company wise, like that'd be awesome to know too. So yeah. Cause it looks amazing. That's, that's it's so got, funny. it's, it's very full featured. It's yeah. So well, there'll be a link to that in the, um, in the show notes and thank you, Andrew, for the, um, submission. Yeah. And for any lukewarm feedback, you can add Alan. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know Jay-Z has all like I've seen him work and he is a heavy user of terminal inside visual studio code. Yes. And, and I've, I've always sort of done it sometimes. And I, I just like, I don't know if I forget about it or I just like, I term so much better on Mac that I just have always gravitated towards, you know, doing my terminal stuff in that. But there is a super compelling reason to use terminal in visual studio code. And this isn't anything that I found on the internet. It's just, I, I happened upon it the other day and I was like, okay, th- this might've done it. If you do any Git commands or anything in, in terminal, like a Git status, right. To see a list of the files that have changed the way that I used to do it is in iTerm, I'd see that list. I'd copy the the link to the file and then I'd be like, all right, let me go open this up in code. If you do that in code in the terminal down there, you can command or control click the actual file and it'll open it up in an editor in Visual Studio Code. So you don't have to take any extra steps. Like you're, you're right there. It's super easy. So 
that is one that I love. Like it, it, it's just a convenience factor that, that saves me 15 seconds. Right. Um, so love that. I do it so much during the day. Um, thought that was worth calling out. And then the other one, I don't know that we recommended this as a tip of the week. I think it was mentioned in passing that, you know, with all the last pass stuff that's happened, I think outlaw has, has done a lot of reading on it. I haven't paid much attention to it. Um, I know Jay-Z, you also looked into a bunch of it and what was happening. Um, I think so Jay-Z moved over to Bitwarden. Um, I've been using Bitwarden, but for a different reason, I didn't want to pay for a multi-user LastPass thing. And in some situations I wanted to sort of keep things separate. And so I had them both installed side by side. And I can say using Bitwarden, I really like the UI and I really like some of the stuff that they've done. And there hasn't currently been any leaks or anything, but the thing that might be pushing me over the top to switching is LastPass has basically jacked the price from $12 a year to $36 a year over the past several years. And it's, it just seems to keep going up. Bitwarden is 10 bucks a year for a single user. So it's less than a third of what LastPass is, and you can get a family version of it for up to six users for $40 a year. So I'm thinking about maybe doing the the whole switch, and they've actually, and maybe LastPass even has some of these features. I don't know. Um, but Bitwarden had something that was super cool, if I can find it again. Um, I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but at, at the bottom of their page for their personal thing, they had a, a comparison of the different ones and it wasn't security report, man, doggone it. I can't find it. Th- there was something super cool on it and I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like a feature I'd never even thought about that. I was like, Oh man, that's a, that's pretty amazing. So I can't. It's really it. easy to switch to. You, you can just export from uh, LastPass and then you import to Bitwarden. It's like, hey, is this LastPass? Check. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely beautiful. Oh, emergency access. This was what it was. So but my wife and I have actually talked about. So if you've ever had anybody have a, a major family event go on, like, you know, somebody passes away, you know, something super bad, it can be really difficult to try and help get them into a good state. Like how did they get to their banking? What, what are all the bills they have? How do you do this kind of stuff? And it can be, especially if they're not using a password manager and things are written down all over the place, like trying to get to where you can help them out is really difficult. Um, and so we've talked about it cause I have a lot in like almost all my stuff in LastPass. Um, what, what if I were to get sick or me and Reagan were to, you know, die in a car crash or something, right? Something awful. How could somebody get to this? They have this feature in here called emergency access to where you can actually designate um, another Bitwarden user to be able to request access to your thing um, in the case of some sort of emergency. So like that to me is like pretty LastPass has the same feature. Yeah, that's what I was saying. I didn't know if they had or not. I'd never even thought about it. Um, you can set but it when up. I saw this. <clears throat> I'm sorry. No, you're good. It's just when I saw this, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. It's something I've thought about, but I'd never really looked into if there was any implementation behind it. Yeah. the um, So that family plan for LastPass versus Bitwarden, it was like $48 a year for LastPass, I think. 
and 40 for Bitwarden. So Bitwarden's, you know, definitely cheaper, but, um, they both have the the family access and the way it works, at least on the last pass side is you can set up like, Hey, here are the people. And what happens is that, um, as a security measure, you can set like what the time frame is that you want to have expire before they can get the access. So they'll make their request and then LastPass will give you as the, as the account holder a period of time to say, no, 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 I'm still around. <laughs> Don't give mm-hmm. them that access. Right. Okay. And, and, and you can set it up to like, um, I think the default is like three days. Like you can say like, Hey, wait, I, you know, give me three days to respond beforehand. And that way, like, you know, in the case of a death, for example, you know, your family member would have to wait three days before they would be able to get into your accounts. Oh, that's actually really interesting. That's, that's good to know how it works. So here's what's interesting on the pricing. And this is what's really annoying. So LastPass is $3 a month per person for the premium. And if you're sharing or anything, you have to have that. So you're 36 bucks a year for one person. Well, you can the, share free. Did they change that? It used to be you couldn't. No, you, you, you here, I'll share a link. Um, uh, they they have free sharing on the free tier. So, but, but you're at 36 bucks a year for one user, but then for families, it's only $4 a month. So it's only a buck more a month, which makes, I mean, that's actually a good deal. Bitwarden is 10 bucks a month for the premium. You can do the free one, which is actually pretty good too. Or you can go to $40 a year, which is still a little bit less, but you know, not significantly so than LastPass. But at any rate, I have been using it. And it is really good. And Jay-Z, I think you like it as well. Yeah, it's great. The w- the one thing where LastPass gets you, in, and I've never understood this, is like that their free thing is for like one device type. So, yeah. you know, it's pretty fully featured as long as that's going to be the device type you're going to use. So in other words, like if your device type is going to be, you know, your computer. Yep. And, and so you're going to use it as like a browser application or whatever. Yeah, uh, do you remember when it was a separate app? Do you remember that? I do. And it's, I do. So LastPass Vault, yeah. Um, but you know, if but then you you're limited in what you could do on like iOS, for example, or right. or Android, right? Like you it, lose that integration capabilities, and that's where yeah. like you want they they try to force you into that premium. But I just I don't understand why there's like such a jump from the free to the premium in comparison. Because yeah. I agree, like you know. Especially if you if if your family like well you know go ahead and jump to the family like you'd be silly not to yeah but it, like you said the the fact that LastPass made it incredibly difficult to use on your computer and then on your phone like you can't it's basically like hey you don't have the premium thing you can't autofill on on iOS or you can't autofill on on your computer well, you pick one right and it's like man you, you used to be a buck a month and that was reasonable right. Um, but going to three bucks a month, which is still not a whole bunch of money, but the fact that they tripled it on you in the time that I've used it, Bitwarden is looking way more appealing now. So, well, in the time that I've used it, it was originally free, right? Like, and the, everything, yeah. like it just did everything free. But you know that was years ago, so like a lot of capabilities been added since, right? But um, yeah, yeah. So at any rate, um, if you are looking, if you don't use a password manager first, do it right. <laughs> Get the free version of Bitwarden or LastPass and just use it, please. Um, but second, if you need that extra functionality, uh, the Bitwarden one is actually really nice. 
Yep. And so uh, with that, I will leave you with this uh, lasting deep thought for the show. Do you think the ocean is salty because the land never waves back? Mm, I like that. I like I that. Hey, there was, there was another one that I heard uh, recently. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do it well, so I'm going to skip it right now. I'll get it for the next episode. What? Yeah, I can't, I can't, um, I'm going to mess it up and I can't mess this one up because it's actually pretty Wait, You fun. shouldn't do things and you're going to mess them up. Right. Yeah, well, Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> Somebody should have told us 207 episodes ago. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, fine. Then I'll fill in the blanks for Alan. Why do photons always go on vacation without any luggage? Uh, I don't know. Because they're traveling light. Ah, that's really good. Last but not least, can trees poop? Uh, I mean, my back porch says yes. A car (laughs) says yes. It's something. Give me the answer. Of course. How else do we get number two pencils? (laughs) (laughs) thank you mike rg for all of those um all right so with that uh subscribe to us on stitchify uh itunes you know wherever you like to find your your podcast wow oh just real quick i just want to interject and let you know the salinity of the ocean is not related to the behavior of the shore but rather to the natural processes involving the erosion of weathering of rocks on land Thank you for that. Chat Thank GPT you, did Chad. not get my job. Yeah. <laughs> not understand the joke. <laughs> Thank you, Chat G or GPT. Uh, Chat GZ. Chat um, hey, <laughs> while you're out there at the uh, website, CodyBlocks.net, make sure you check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to our Slack channel at CodyBlocks.net slash Slack. Uh, yeah, and hey, follow us on Twitter at CodingBox, where I just tweeted a minute ago. And uh, head over to CodingBox.net, and you'll find all the social links at the top of the page.